I am Brendan Slocum, musician, educator, and author of the upcoming novel, The Violin Conspiracy. I'm here to tell you how music can save your life. Each week, I'll be joined by someone whose life was also changed by music. Since I'm a classically trained musician, many of my guests might come from that world. But fair warning, I also rock out to DMX and Weezer and everything in between. So no matter what kind of music you listen to or play, you're in for an interesting, inspiring, and lively conversation. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is the legendary jazz pianist, composer, arranger, and conductor, Billy Childs. Billy has earned a whopping 13 Grammy Award nominations, and he's won four. He's been commissioned to compose for more orchestras and symphonies than even he can probably remember. As a pianist, Billy has performed with Yo-Yo Ma, Sting, Renee Fleming, the LA Philharmonic, the Detroit Symphony, Chick Corea, the Kronos Quartet, Wynton Marcellus, Jack DeJohnette, Dave Holland, Ron Carter, the Ying Quartet, the American Brass Quintet, Chris Body, and about a million other people. That's how cool this guy is. All right, that's enough of that. I am so happy to introduce you to my new friend, Billy Childs. Thank you, Mr. Billy Childs, for joining us. The legendary Mr. Billy Childs, I should say. Please excuse uh, me. For I don't know. I don't know if I can handle the weight of that word. <laughs> you know what? I think your accomplishments uh, pretty much speak that you can. I would love to know the story of how you got started. Please tell us the story of Billy Childs. I was born into a household full of music, but both of my parents. I have two older sisters, and both of my parents were school teachers, but they had. I should say, and they had incredible taste in music. So I would listen to music ranging from Bach, Handel, to um, Jobim, to the Modern Jazz Quartet, and you know the Beatles, The Temptations, Sly and the Family Stone. And then when I was around, you know, my early, my preteens, then I got exposed to like progressive rock and fusion, you know, and so. I had this constant inflow of interesting music to grow up to. It was a great time to grow up and listen to music. Sounds like it. It sounds like you had a, 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 an incredible variety. Especially during that time, too, which was around the late 60s, early 70s. There was a lot of great and interesting music happening from Laura Nero to Miles Davis to um, Leonard Bernstein. There was all of these things happened, this confluence of different musical genres entering my life. Plus, I had a next-door neighbor. His name is Leon Buscara. And he was into jazz piano playing. He was a jazz pianist, even back then. He was really interested in jazz. He's about three years older than me. And so when I was like maybe 10 or 11, his brother, Glenn, was my best friend. And we would play sports. But when Glenn wasn't around, Leon would be there and on the piano, and he would show me tunes. He showed me Cantaloupe Island, you know, by Herbie Hancock. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and that's when it first came out, or, or a few years after it first came out. And he showed me um, a song that he wrote, you know. And so I consider those really my first real piano lessons. And 
then I would just play these tunes all around the house, you know, on any piano. If I would go to somebody's house and, and they had a piano, I'd sit down and play. When I was just get, going to, into the ninth grade, going into a four-year high school, my parents sent me to the school called Midland, which is in the Ojai Valley in Los Olivos. I went there and I heard Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and that just changed my life. It turned my head around. Oh, wow. And, I, and they had a little piano, and I would just listen to his music and go to the piano and try to recreate it. And that's kind of where I started. Wow, that is amazing. So you, it sounds like all of your life growing up, you were surrounded by music. Yes, yes, for sure. It was, I kind of lived and breathed it without really knowing that it was such an essential part of my being. You know, it just, I just, I guess took it for granted that I would be around music all the time because I was. And it influenced me in ways I didn't really know at a young age, but then I was able to crystallize when I was actually beginning to learn the actual principles of music. That's amazing. Wow. Well, early in your career, what was one of the most significant challenges that you had to face and, and how did you overcome it? Nothing really seemed like an insurmountable challenge. I was always curious about stuff. I remember um, my theory teacher, who was another person who changed my life, Marianne Usler. She heard me playing just running up and down the keyboard, you know, like blues scales and stuff like that, and things that I had learned from Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. She heard me uh, doing that, and she said, do you know what you're doing? Do you know anything about what you're playing? And I, I, I even said proudly, it was even proudly, I said no, you know. <laughs> and I, I, I was proud because I thought that it was it was, uh, you know, good enough that I had discovered it on my own, mm -hmm. you know. But then she said, you know, after hearing me, she said, you know what, after I'm through with you, you're going to be able to name everything that you played. And I thought, you know, I'll, I'll humor the old lady and just <laughs> listen to her in class. But it turned out that that changed my life. So I guess the challenge was... Uh, being able to figure out from a theoretical standpoint what music was, what I was doing. That was the main challenge, but I didn't look at it as a challenge. I looked at it as like you might look at solving a crossword puzzle or playing some sort of game where you had to figure out playing chess right. or something like that. I looked at it like that. It was fun because she was such a great teacher. She made it fun to learn this stuff. Wow. I think you probably are the first person I've ever heard that calls uh, music theory fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was like a puzzle, you know? Wow. Well, it's fun because, especially when you start connecting the dots and you see, and you start seeing where those principles apply to your music and, and how it can help your music. You know, correct voice leading just makes your music sound better. Understanding figured bass and, and descending bass lines and contrary motion and things like that makes your music sound better. And so it was fun in the sense that I had this template to make my music sound better. Wow. It's all about the music for you. That is awesome. Yeah. That's fantastic. Wow. So, and, and, and your teacher recognized that. 
She did. She saw the potential in my, you know, what I could know and what I could, you know, she saw that my brain was operating in a way that I would be able to grasp what the information that she was teaching me. And, you know, nobody was able to predict how I would use it, but she was able to at least give me the information and then I could figure out how to use it. Would you say that uh, your your teacher, your your theory teacher, was um, one of the people that put you on the current trajectory on on your current trajectory? Without a doubt, and she changed my trajectory from one thing to another thing. Oh wow! How so? She, she changed my trajectory from being someone who who wanted to do everything by intuition only, mm. you know, and she imparted a system systematic knowledge of the principles of music in me and a curiosity about it that informed every every like decision or every technique that I would use was based off of this discipline very disciplined approach to the fundamentals of music i mean so i was she changed my trajectory from shying away from the theories about music to embracing them and actually utilizing them to their their best use. Now, what was that? Uh, was that a little nerve wracking? Was it jarring for you? Did you welcome it? Say, yeah, okay, I'm ready for this. I can do it. Oh yeah, it, the, the the last one. <laughs> I, I, it, I welcomed it. and I was ready for it. I always wanted to know what I was doing. I I wanted to be able to understand things, you know. Actually, she helped me find out that that, that's what I wanted to do. I really did want to understand. At first, I was like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't really care. You know, (laughs) I just play this stuff and um, I just play this music and that should be enough. Yeah. Why do I need to understand it in terms of like calling it something technical? But she taking her class really made me understand that it wasn't just about technique you know it wasn't just about having a technical knowledge just for the sake of having the technical knowledge i mean it was about the more knowledge you have the more free you are oh wow the less knowledge you have the less free you are you know and that that was the philosophy that you adopted right from the beginning yeah it, even though i didn't articulate it but that's that's what it was it was like wow this is this means if I do this here, I could probably do this in another situation, you know, in, in music over here, you know? Yeah. Wow. So so do you think your parents were aware, you know, as a, as a child, that uh, the level of talent that you displayed? No, I don't think so. Well, they, after I, because I went to this school called Midland, which was the boarding school, mm-hmm. and where I really got serious about the piano because there was nothing else there for me to do. So there was a piano there, and I heard Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and then I eat, sleeped, and breathed piano, and and pretty much Emerson, Lake and Palmer, too. So I I sat, and I tried to to play this stuff, but I also listened, I played Laurie Nero stuff. I played the songs that Leon taught me, you know, and I just kept, and I was like 14, so my mind was still growing, Mm -hmm. so I was able to learn an extraordinary amount on my own in two years. Wow. And so 
I left this boarding school and went to Hamilton High School in Los Angeles, which is, you know, kind of now it's a music magnet school, but back then it was just a regular high school. But when I went to Hamilton, both of them being educators realized that I had this great potential because I had made this these incredible strides in playing the piano in the two years I was at Midland. So when they saw that, they said, well, he needs to, to study with real teachers, you know. When I went to Hamilton, also outside of Hamilton, I, I took like classical piano lessons, jazz piano lessons, arranging lessons, and theory lessons, you know. I had all of these classes outside of Hamilton. And I really kind of more focused on those than my schoolwork, really. But that's okay. Hey, that's okay. You were getting your music education. In today's climate, what is your perception for Black musicians? And do you think that there is a divide between Black musicians and and white musicians? Well, in America, there's a divide between Black and white. You know, so yeah, it follows that in the music world, there would be division. There would be these divisions. I mean, as you, I'm sure you know, a very seminal event just happened with Terrence Blanchard's um, opera being performed in the Met. And that's like a major advancement or um, achievement to break down a barrier that was happening at the New York Metropolitan Opera, you know. I'll put it this way. I view myself not as a Black composer. I view myself as a Black man who composes music, you know, and there's a difference. There definitely is a difference, yeah. I mean, one puts a stigma in everybody's mind about, you know, when you say Black composer, then you would say Black music, and that separates, you know. Now, there is music in America. I mean, America culturally is totally indebted to Black culture. And black music, you know, there's by black music, I mean music that was invented and innovated by black musicians. But these were black men and women who first who invented music out of uh, out of our experience, you know. So do I think that there is a divide between black and white music? Yes, because we are in America. There's a divide between black and white, you know, that you know, has been of late exacerbated by not this president, but our last president, you know. And I think that everybody wants to be, no matter if you're Black, white, Asian, Latino, man, woman, if you're composing music, you want to be recognized for the music first, you know, not your skin or your sexual preference, you want the music to be, that's the ultimate, that's the goal that we all seek. But we, at the same time, we cannot deny our culture. We cannot deny our uh, skin, you know, especially in, in light of the, you know, politics that America places on our skin color. That it, we're, we're kind of forced into this paradigm by the, the baggage of the history of America itself. But we always strive for unity, you know. You know, it's kind of a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> I, I think it's a great answer. Words of wisdom from Billy Childs. What do you think the uh, solution is? What do you think that we should be working towards in order to um, close that divide? What I do is I just 
continue to create the best music that I can possibly create as a human being and keep focusing on the, you know, I like the same things about nature that a white musician would like. I like forests, I like trees, and and that inspires me musically. And we focus on our commonality, you know. We don't shy away from, you know, if there's a problem, the only way to resolve the problem is to look at the problem, you know, in the face without pretense and without agenda. But looking at the problem, then focus on focusing on the solutions to fix the problem. But there are those who want to look at the problem and see how they can benefit from the division that the problem creates. You know, how can we further divide so that I can benefit individually from this? There are those who would do that. I choose to try to use my music as a healing mechanism to, to, to look at the problems and look at the things that are beautiful and highlight those and, and say, you know, music can express things that are inexpressible with words, you know, and maybe there's a way to address certain things that make people see our commonality that have nothing to do. And and these, you know, techniques have nothing to do with words. It's, It's about music. Maybe there's a way to get people to look at themselves through art without words. Wow, that is very profound. And now I know you mentioned something you said earlier was really interesting to me. You said that you are a composer who happens to be black as opposed to a black composer. I get that. I totally get that. There are a lot of people that I don't think they see a difference at all. Would you mind expanding on that a little bit? You put yourself in a box when you say, I mean, there's like this general term composer. And then, so when you say black composer, you put yourself in a subdivision of that general term composer. So then it's like going to like a, you know, it always kind of grates on me and offends me when you go to the literature section of a bookstore and you see black literature. You know, Zora Neale Hurston is just as essential as Ernest Hemingway. You know, Langston Hughes is is just as profound as T.S. Eliot. Because composing is composing. You know, music is music. I mean, they don't say white. This is the white section of the (laughs) bookstore. They just call it, you know, bookstore. You don't see Barnes & Noble, the white bookstore, you know. Uh, So it's it's just a bookstore. Why, Why does white art need no qualification? But black art does, needs a qualification. I don't get that. Now, do you think that's self-imposed or do you think society has imposed that upon people? Do you think people view that as a benefit if you are a composer and you happen to be black? It's like, well, I've got to say that I'm a black composer so that I can stand out, so that my music will stand out. No, I think the most uh, composers who are black that I know don't think about that. They're thinking about their music. Right. And... You know, of course, being a black man who composes music, I am affected by my culture. You know, I grew up listening to the Four Tops. I, I grew up listening to James Brown. You know, I, I grew up listening to blues, to jazz. You know, I played jazz. So I'm going to be affected by black culture, and it's going to show up in my music. But that doesn't mean that that's the most salient 
quality. That's the only quality about it, mm-hmm. you know. And therefore, you have to call the music that, you know. My skin color should not put my music in the box of my skin color, you know. I agree. I agree 100%. It's like, that's always kind of bugged me out, too. It's like, well, okay, what what is black music what is it i thought it was all just music just happened to be written by a black person but you know that's me maybe we'll get there one of these days where people just see the music section there's music uh, like i like you say there's music that's invented by black people you know blues gospel spirituals and things like that i mean there's music that but it's out in the world now, and everybody can and should be influenced and inspired by it. Same with European classical music. Hinnemith's music and Stravinsky and Shostakovich doesn't only belong to someone, you know, a blue-blooded person who lives in the Hamptons, you know. It also belongs to me, too. It belongs to someone in South Central who happens to hear it and inspired by it. it makes their day better it belongs to everybody the music once it's out there it belongs to everybody what's your favorite thing about music you you entertain countless people what what does it actually do for you well there, there's two answers to that one is listening to it being on the, on the receiving end of it and the other is like generating it through composing or performing or whatnot the thing that i really love about performing it and composing it even is connecting with you other humans and in a sense it you know can be spiritual in that way you know the connection is not only with the audience but with the other musicians too there are times when it's inexplicable how we ended up thinking the same way at this one precise moment in time of music you know so, so it's like, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't know where that came from, but we were of the same mind. You know, that is evidence. That's the most evidence of God that I've had, you know. Also from the receiving end, like listening to it, what I love is like, there's a difference between what I call active listening and passive listening. You know, when you have passive listening, in music, the music is there to just, you know, be superfluous to your existence. It's there to make you dance or move your body or or lull you into a stupor, you know, like with like being some hypnotic uh, trance-like thing, you know, or almost like meditation or something. To me, active listening <clears throat> means that the music is stimulating your mind to invent scenarios, invent to interact with it and propel you and prompt you to think of, use your imagination, see visions of things or see shapes or see colors to see whatever it is that you see when you are actively engaged in the music. So that's my favorite thing. You know, it it places you in an imaginary world of your own invention, kind of guides you to that place. And it's so, it's to the point where you can have a different adventure every single time you hear something. Yeah, every every time you hear the same piece, you can have a different experience. Yeah, and that that is amazing. I tell people that and, you know, who are non-musicians, they're just kind of like, yeah, I just thought it was a good song. I'm like, yeah, there's so much more going on. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, a lot of that, you know, 
maybe that's uh, a, a sign of where we are today as a society with technology in the sense that, you know, you have Spotify, you have iTunes, you have YouTube, you have this abundance of music where you can just listen to it without a second thought. And that's what it is, without a second thought. You listen to it in a very surface way on your iPhone sometimes, you know, with these crappy speakers. <laughs> and you can't get the real full experience as opposed to like having to go and buy the record, you know, back in the day and going to your stereo, which is devised to for the maximum, you know, whatever your money could afford, you know, you would have a stereo that would be to the best of your ability, enabling you to experience the music with the best sound that you could. So you'd put it on and you would listen. And then because you didn't have YouTube to click your fingers on all the time, you actually had to listen to the record again and again and again. <laughs> um, and then what happens is on the repeated listenings, you start finding new things about the music. You, you get more deep into the songs that you already have rather than this kind of surface way, you know, d d dismissive way of listening to music that people now do because they have so much of it and, and it's so easy to, to, to access. Yeah. That's, I, th I like the way you put that. They, they listen to it dismissively. It really is. You know, it's like, okay, I heard it, heard 10 seconds of that one, on to the next thing. <laughs> yeah. You don't get any real, um, relationship with the music you don't get any enjoyment i don't think not the kind of enjoyment you would get from repeated listenings and finding new things about it you know i thought i was one of the few people that actually did that i would listen to the same thing over and over and over and hear something different every time oh there's the um the piece by herbie hancock uh actual proof me and my friend billy carroll who is unfortunately no longer with us. He was a, a musical genius. But he and I would sit for maybe, I don't know, it went, this went on for maybe three, four months. Every day we would listen to actual proof from beginning to end. And we, I know that song, you know, in my opinion, it's probably the greatest Fender Rhodes solo that's ever been played, that's ever been recorded. And the and one of the greatest drum performances by Mike Clark and Paul Jackson. It's one of the greatest rhythm section performances ever. And I would listen to it and I would always find new things, but we listened to that thing every day. And I can't tell you how profoundly that the experience, how profound the experience was of listening to that track and understanding it. I, I, I have a new, I have an understanding of that, a very intimate understanding of that track. And it's shaped how I play piano, especially Fender Rhodes. It's jazz, it's funk, it's classical. Herbie does things on the piano that, you know, you would hear in a piano concerto. Wow, that's uh, pretty high praise coming from uh, Mr. Billy Childs. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, wow. we're talking about Herbie Hancock. <laughs> hey, the one and only. Yeah. That's good yeah. stuff. Wow. Hey, was there was there ever a time where you were confronted by someone who just didn't get what you were doing? It's like, well, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And um, was that discouraging? Or how did you get through to that person? Well, that usually 
happens with critics. <laughs> and not, not the general people, not the people who matter to me, uh, but the, 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 the critics. A lot of them, not all of them, some of them are really knowledgeable, but a lot of them are glorified fans of the music, you know, who come up and who, who think that having an opinion itself is a creative act, you know. <laughs> That's a quote from Mike Nichols, you know. I love it. That's usually the case. They, they, they don't get it. I remember talking to Stanley Clark one time, and he was talking about when Return to Forever was first going out on the road, and he, he said that when, whenever a critic really liked what they did, then, then they worried, you know. Because, you know, it was, they, they're usually wrong about it, hmm. <laughs> you know. So, so, yes, those are the people who don't get it. And I don't really, um, I don't really uh, care to try and elaborate to them what they missed about it. And the people who don't get it, who are not critics, who are in the audience, I haven't run into too many of them, but... I don't, you know, you can't get mad at somebody who doesn't like your music. I mean, that's a matter of taste. <laughs> you know, I, I look at it as I didn't do my job. I didn't, oh, I wow. don't like when I'm in a room and there's a lot of people talking and I'm trying to play. There's an aspect of like, well, these people are being rude and they're being boorish. But there's an aspect of I'm not doing my job. I'm not grabbing their attention and I need to. And I need to do something that's impressive because in the real world, people either like your music or they don't. I don't know about other musicians, but my goal is to connect with people. And so that's very important to me, if, whether they are connecting with it. You know, and if they're not, more often than not, I'll look at it, well, maybe there's something about my music that wasn't successful, it didn't work. But if it's um, a critic who says it, Eh, whatever. <laughs> you know? I think it's amazing that you you have um, the I don't even know what you call it, the wherewithal to it, it, it's a, a self reflection. You go back and you say, "Hmm, I need to do something different to grab these people." They're just you know, with a lot of people have egos, and you know, sometimes musicians have the biggest egos, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. how do you even do that? Well, I mean, what I tell students a lot is. You have to, you have to, what I, how I put it is you have to have faith in the hipness of your own ideas. And, you know, everybody had an idea. Beethoven, when he wrote his Ninth Symphony, had an idea about it, you know, first. And then it manifested, you know, uh, through the great life-changing ideas to the crappy ideas that went nowhere. You know, everyone starts out with an idea, you know. So your idea could be the thing that changes the world, you know, but you have to, but you have to put the requisite work and time into it, but you should always have faith that your idea can be, have a profound impact on humankind. That being said, you should always balance that with a, a sense of self-reflection and, and self-doubt. You should have doubt about what you're writing so that you can step outside of yourself and look at, well, I, I you know, I'm not sure if this is going to work. I, I doubt that it's going to work. Why should this work? Let me go back 
and see everything. And then that way you can be critical of yourself and, and create better art. Confidence should be balanced by self, by, by doubt, you know. All of this fantastic advice I'm getting from uh, the Grammy-winning Mr. Billy Childs. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> you know, I had my Grammys like set up on this shelf back here, but it's too ostentatious. <laughs> I, 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 I took them down. I don't know. You earned them. You earned them. It's good stuff. I know, <laughs> but it's like, you know... Well, I'm still looking for my first one, and it's going to be on oh. display everywhere. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> you go out, you know, you'll see anybody on the street. Hey, 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 you know what? I got a Grammy. Hey, have you seen you this? Know? This is my Grammy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let I'm me just... tell you the story about it. I'm just going to yeah. put a chain on it and wear it around my yeah, neck. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> All, right. All right. This is the part in the show where you get to ask me anything you like. What are you looking for when you go to a concert? What do I look for? Um, well, a couple of factors. I li- it depends on the type of concert I go to. If it's uh, you know like a, a pop or a rock concert, I'm just looking for the band to, like you actually said, I want to see them getting into what it is they're doing. I know why I love the songs, and I want to see that they love them just as much. Uh, and if it's a classical concert, I want to... I want to see that the performers are feeling exactly what I'm feeling. Having played a lot of the, the, the music that they're doing, you know, I'm especially in tune with the violins or the conductors. I'm like, yeah, I want to see just how you guys are getting into this. No, I want to see, I want to see that the musicians are, are in it for the right reasons, they're, that they're playing for themselves and playing right. because they love it. And in turn, it, it's going to make me love it even more. And that's really what I want to get out of it. Yeah, I go there to get an experience. And that's what I try to impart also to the listener. Whether it's a dramatic, I want them to, like you said, I want them to feel something psychologically or emotionally or whatever. I really love what you said about, I mean, I'm going back to this. I I really, really love what you said about um, if there's someone, aside from a critic, who didn't really enjoy it like someone else did, that you do a lot of self-reflection. To me, that is incredible. And actually, I I won't lump all critics into that because there are some critics who have criticized my work, but it's done to me from not a, not a place of arrogance. You know, it was actually, here's what I didn't, because a lot of times they'll write something as though it's just a fact. This is an empirical fact, you know, uh, this is, this music, this thing sucks. <laughs> and that's just it, you know, or this was great. And that's just it, the bottom line. Uh-huh. But some, some write about the music and they had a problem with this thing. And here's what, why they felt this way about it. I can accept that and, and, and can go on with that. But a lot of times it's, it's basically, you know, presented as, as fact, but, but the people who matter to me, who I want to connect with, I'll be guided by that. And I will definitely um, want to know what it was about it that that didn't connect with, with somebody. And, and I'll examine that. That's, that's for, for real. Words of wisdom, Billy Childs. Now I got it. <laughs> I'm totally going to do that. Now, um, as far as music and your favorite compositions you mentioned some of the artists that you've performed with what what who is your favorite composer or your artist and your favorite piece of music oh man there's there's too <laughs> many 
to name. I'll give you a few of them. The thing that turned my head around for European classical music was uh, Mathis Der Mahler by Hindemith. Uh-huh. That is just such an extraordinarily beautiful piece. It's based off of a triptych painting by Matthias Grunewald, who was a painter in Prussia or something, I think, back in the 16th century or something, like in the 1500s, maybe 17th century, the 1600s. I can't remember what century, but it was around there. And um, it was an opera that, that Hindemith took, you know, the incidental music, the overture and some other parts and turned it into a symphony. And it's just, it's beautiful. It's um, completely conjures up in my mind these images, you know, that really have nothing to do with the painting. They're, mm-hmm. they're just like storylines that I create in my mind, you know, from, from listening to that. I would also say um, the uh, I Have a Dream by Herbie Hancock off of The Prisoner. It was a big influence on me, you know. It's just this continuous stream of beautiful music that seems to like morph into from one orchestration into another. You know, he has like maybe a nonet is playing it. And it's a beautiful melody. And it was written in response to the murder of Martin Luther King. And that's when it's off the prisoner, that album. Also, I love um Dishi. That uh, you'll know when you get there is a beautiful song off that also wandering spirit song by Julian Priester. I love the first circle by Pat Metheny. There's an album called Come to My Garden by Minnie Riperton, this brilliant genius producer, composer, arranger, Charles Stepney, did the, the producing and the arranging and songwriting and conducting of the orchestra. And that's a big influence on me. I know there's a bunch that I'm missing, but those are. Those are some Laura Nero music, you know, like a singer-songwriter, her first albums, Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer. These are, these are just a few. I could go on. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and my last question, did music save your life? Actually, I would, I would put it, I, I don't know about save, but it, would, it made my life better. The trajectory that I was on was one trajectory i don't even know how that would have turned out because at age 14 again when i heard emerson lincoln palmer uh, i decided that i wanted to do music and that was it and so what it did was it put me on a trajectory where i was very it changed my life by making me a very lucky person because i was lucky in the sense that at a relatively young age i knew what i wanted to do which the majority of people don't, right. you know, a lot of times it takes a lot of people a long time to figure out what their role is. But I knew immediately when I started, what it felt like to play piano and to work things out and how fun it was to figure out the intricacies and the challenges and the puzzles of it. Oh, I want to do this for the rest of my life. I figured that. And so it made my life better. Wow. Measurably. Thank you so much for sharing. That is that is incredible. Oh, thank thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, the pleasure is mine. And we'd love to hear what's going on. What do you? Up, oh, up. Oh, see, here we go. Oh, do you hear? You oh, hear that? Loud and clear. Because I can't hear it. Wow, that's yep, a trip. Yep. I'll, I'll okay. tell you how good it is. Go ahead. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That. I'm just doing four. 
wow, that's a trip. You can hear that. Well, I, I can't hear a note that I'm playing because of the headphones. You know, I, trust me, it sounds fantastic. Go ahead, please. <laughs> if I can't hear it, I'm not going to play it. You know, uh, but um, what am I doing? Okay, well, let me see. Oh. How does this sound? Oh. So you can hear all that. Loud and clear. Yeah. So what's on the horizon? Let's see. Well, I wrote a violin concerto for Rachel Barton Pine. It's like my third commission for her. I wrote her a solo violin piece. I wrote her a piece for violin and piano. And now this is um, going to happen. I have a lot of commissions coming up. You know, going to write a piece for the L.A. Master Chorale and my jazz chamber orchestra. And then I'm going to write a piece, as, uh, um, a, there's a series by the Soroya Center here at Northridge, at Cal State Northridge, and uh, there's a music group called um, Delirium Musicum that I'm going to write a piece for, and it's going to be about the trees in California, the redwoods. The, the, um, there are three composers, each on a, depicting a particular tree, so there's Stephen Mackey, who's writing a piece about the Redwoods. I'm writing about the Sequoias. And Gabriella Smith, this really incredible young composer, is writing about the Joshua Tree. So there's that. I'm writing a string quartet for a group in Chicago, which will be also part of this violin concerto premiere. The violin will be, concerto will be premiered in February, April, and, and July by four different orchestras. Boulder Symphony, the um, symphony in Anchorage, Alaska, the uh, the symphony at Interlaken in Michigan, and um, the Grant Park Orchestra in Chicago. There's that. There's a, there's a couple of other things. I'm writing a saxophone concerto for this brilliant saxophonist named Stephen Banks. I'm supposed to write something for Steve Wilson. Well, you're just doing it all. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> You know, I actually had the opportunity to uh, to pull. I, I had an opportunity to watch uh, Rachel Barton Pine play, and when I tell you, I've just never seen anybody play as fast and she's as accurately. It's, it's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, she's she's the real deal. Yeah, she is, <laughs> and she's made a point of commissioning works from composers of African American descent. You know, she's made a concerted effort because she realizes that there was a paucity of, of those commissions happening. God bless her for that. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you know what? We are going to be the lucky recipients to hear your music being played yet again. That is unbelievable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. You know what? The legendary Grammy winning Billy Childs. <laughs> Thank you, sir. How Music Can Save Your Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, hosted by me, Brendan Slocum, produced by Hannah Ray Leach, and mixed by Eric Coltnow. Special thanks to Jeff Kleinman and everyone at Anchor Books for their help with this podcast. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about me and my novel, The Violin Conspiracy, check out my website, brendanslocum.com. I'll see you next time.
Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.